0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Episode 9 of The Press with Michael Collins. Thanks for listening and subscribing, especially to all those who have rated and reviewed the podcast. If you haven't and get a chance to do so, it would be huge help for me. would really, really appreciate that. Michael Collins covers golf for ESPN. More importantly, Michael Collins makes golf fun, and not enough people do that. He has a voice that golf needs. I'm so glad he's in the position that he's in. The reason for that is his background is so different. He didn't grow up playing golf, didn't study broadcasting in school or anything like that. He was a stand-up comedian. Got to know some golfers, ended up caddying for one of them, and turned that into a full-time job. Did that for about a decade, and then transitioned to the broadcasting world, as I said now with ESPN. Uh, It's so fun to listen to him, whether he's doing radio interviews, popping up on ESPN— during their tournament coverage, online, what have you. Really, really good stuff. This is the first time I ever talked to him. I reached out to him, wanted to have him on. He was kind enough to do so. Couldn't have been nicer, more generous with his time. Couldn't have been funnier. Amazing stories. As it turns out, he grew up not far from my hometown of Philadelphia in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'd been wanting to have him on, and I'm so glad it worked out. I know you're going to love it. Episode 9 of The Press with Michael Collins. You loving the sixes right now as much as I am?
1: I'm thinking we have potential, but I feel, I honestly feel like we might be a little snake bit. Like, (laughs) it seems like all of the dudes that we're counting on now, it's like they're all coming off an injury.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Once you get a couple of nagging injuries like that, especially with the foot, like after what Yao Ming went through, it's like, man, I don't know. You know, the one thing that sucks being a Phillies fan, any kind of Philly sport fan, you don't want hope, right? Because <laughs> you already know if you got hope, your heart's going to be crushed. So it's why we're so mad and bitter all the time.
0: Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I know, it's. Uh, I, I have that same lingering fear in the back of my mind. It's like people it's as if people assume that mb is just going to be able to play like 65 games next season whereas every single game i'm going to be like did he make it through tonight okay good
1: exactly that's what cracks me up it's like it's just man hey we're gonna have be great next year when like the first couple games maybe (laughs) but that's what philly team doesn't do that it's like the philly start off eight no and everyone's like yeah playoff team nah not really yeah just relax the sucking's coming don't worry
2: (laughs) yeah
0: like they were ahead of the curve last year and now they're the worst team in baseball
1: right it's exactly right
0: yeah so so how how hectic is your schedule these days doing the media gig now
1: it's crazy um and it's gotten crazier like since i started doing sports center which is really it's awesome you know? But it's just it's so different, man.
0: Cause you've you been, know you're really
1: cool, but just
0: yeah. You're you're used to the road, obviously, from catting and then yeah. your days doing, well, comedy. doing
1: stand-up comedy. Yeah, yeah. from doing stand up comedy it's like I'm really used to I love to travel. Like that's always been one of my favorite things in the world to do. Now I hate to pack. <laughs> <laughs> the packing is the bane of my existence. Like I'm I got a bed full of clothes right now where I try and I'm trying to lay out outfits. So I got to count. All right. How many days I'm going to be gone? How many of those work days? So I got to lay out my work outfits. And it's like, all right, how many times am I going to potentially be on TV? So I got to try and have, all right, how many shirts do I need? How many ties do I need? You know, the jacket coordination to make it look right. <laughs> like all this Stupid stuff that I that part I hate the traveling. I love you know, like going to a new place or going to a golf course that I love being at, you know, seeing all my boys, like and all my friends. Or, like, last week on the LPGA tour, you know, if I don't see them for a long time, it's there's nothing better than going out on the driving range, like those first couple days and seeing everybody and then doing interviews with them because they know it's I'm gonna have some fun and like that part of it's really cool. The hard part is, I guess, you know, being away from my family. Now that you know, I got a couple kids at home—a ten-year-old and an eight-year-old. It's cool. It's cool when they, when we Facetime, and they're like, "Daddy, we saw you on TV." (laughs) Like that part's really cool, and they like, they still are at the age where I'm like the cool dad. So. That part of it's really, like, it's neat. And I, and I still, and I don't get used to it. Like, I don't ever get used to when people come up and like, hey, are you the ESPN golf guy? Like, it still <laughs> freaks me out. Like, it still makes me giggle that people recognize me for that. Because I, I forget. Like, I always pretend like I'm doing it just for my buddies. Yeah. Like I actually forget that, that strangers are watching but I like <laughs> the fact that people that see me on TV or, or see my videos online and stuff I like the fact that they feel like they know me because that really is and, and the biggest compliment that I get from players and caddies and fans is like I'm the same dude whether the camera's on or off like I don't care if there's a camera around I'm going to treat whether you're a if you're a janitor who's a huge golf fan, or a trash man who's a huge golf fan, or if you're the CEO of a corporation, but I'm gonna treat you the same. Like your title doesn't, for me, your title doesn't determine whether you're cool or not. Yeah. You know. I, I
0: think that's one of the things like that. Are you somebody? I, I think I think that was one of the things that jumped out at me when, when I first started hearing you. It's like. You're like a guy I grew up with around Philadelphia. I mean, you being a Philly guy, I mean, that's just kind of <laughs> your, your approach and your style is very, very relatable and very much somebody that you're used to being around. And I, I think that's why you've connected with a lot of people. And I was going to kind of get into that. Like, how, how much of a trip is it? Because you don't have the traditional golf background to be doing this for ESPN.
1: No, nah, that's what I, I still laugh when I get emails or messages like on Facebook and Twitter and stuff from kids in, like that are in college and they're like journalism students. And they're like, hey, you know, hoping to break into journalism and I love the stuff you do on ESPN. Like, what can I do? And I'm like, why are you asking me? Like, I failed high school English. Right? <laughs> like, I never went to college. This is, I'm, I would not recommend my route. <laughs> anyone normally would try and take my route. It's probably under a bridge right now with a sign that says like we'll sing for food or something, <laughs> right? Like this is not the road that you necessarily wanna attempt to try to get to where yeah. I've gotten to. But that's also why it's it's even to me, like I still I still wait for the alarm clock to go off and for me to still be like twenty and I'm just starting to do stand up comedy. I still wait for that alarm clock to go off and go, man, this was it was all a dream. Like it wasn't real. Yeah, because it is so it's so different. It's it's so different. My my path to where I have gotten right now. And my mom and I, we talk about it and laugh and stuff about it because it was, you know, it's so unconventional. And it's so if you would have told me when I was 20 years old that I was going to end up working for ESPN covering golf, I would have made you pee in a cup and told you to go to HR. Like <laughs> you need to go, you need to get checked out, man. Whatever you're on, is something's wrong, your medication's off. Right. But now that I'm here, like I, I love, I love what I get to do. And I love the fact that the people that I get to cover and work with and interview, they love the they love how much I love doing what I do, so it it's it's like it rubs off you know what I mean It's yeah. almost like I'm in a business where fakers get called out a lot because it's impossible to fake passion hmm. in this sport in this industry in this industry if you don't really. You know, if you're interviewing somebody and you're really not into interviewing them, like, you can't fake that. You can't fake that you're really into doing something you're not into doing or talking to someone you really don't want to talk to. So I'm lucky enough that, like, the people that I get to talk to, they know that I really enjoy talking to them about the stuff that we talk about, even the hard stuff, even the stuff that's not easy To when a guy, you know, is – When a guy loses a golf tournament, you know, or in a spectacular way, and I got to talk to him about it, or something difficult is going on in their life, like they know that that I'm, I feel, I try and feel what they are feeling. I try to be empathetic to the to the great stuff and the stuff that's difficult as well. And I feel like I've been very fortunate that the people that I've been hanging out with and that I get to work with they feel that too. And I think that that kind of thing comes across Mm -hmm. where athletes and celebrities, when it comes down to it, they're really, they're people, they're, they're people just like all of us. And they just have a job that puts them in front of everyone so that everyone sees publicly what they do for a living. But does it make them better people than what we are? I think no, like I think a teacher or a librarian or a cop or a a garbage guy like that doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't make you less important as a person and it doesn't make you less better as a person. But I think like celebrities and athletes and stuff, I think they appreciate that fact sometimes because I think sometimes they don't like it that that other people look at them as more than just a human being
2: mm-hmm.
1: like a regular person you know now there are times of course it's i mean it, it's nice like you know if you if you're a celebrity or a golfer or a famous athlete or something and you call somewhere and go hey you know i was hoping i was going to get to go do this or do that <laughs> then a lot of times you know they you know, if i called them was like hey i'm jim I'm the garbage guy and stuff. I was hoping that I could come over there and see this play, but hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I don't think they're going to hook me up. Like, right. So there, there are times when it's really cool, but there are other times when it's, when you're talking to people just one-on-one, I love the fact that, you know, we're all kind of the same, you know, yeah. but then for people that just watch these other people on television or whatnot, you know, I love the fact that I can go. I want people to have a reason to really like you, yeah, or really like why or even not like you. you know there are some people are like, man, I used to like that guy, and after you talk to him like the, he's not into the same music that I'm into, like he's not into the same hobbies that I'm into, or she's not like she doesn't she's not quite the same person that I thought she was on a golf course, or he's not the same, so that part's really cool man it's it's just I got the coolest job in the whole world, man, and I know it that's the other thing. I'm the first person to admit, yes, I know how lucky i am
0: <laughs> that and that's that's good. I mean that's something you don't want to lose sight of i mean that's everybody- nah. sh- everybody should have that type of perspective, like appreciate where you are and what you've been given.
1: yeah, I don't ever want to be the guy who's like, you know, hey, you know who I am like back up like. <laughs> If I ever did something like that, my mom would literally get the pizza paddle out again and beat me in front of people. Like, she would spank me as a 46-year-old man in front of my friends, which I'm still scared of that. Like, I would still be mortifyingly embarrassed (laughs) if my mom – like, if I ever acted like that, my mom would call me out, and I would never hear the end of it. And then my friends would call me out, too. Well, you know, so – but that also then means like I'm not afraid to call my friends out if they start acting like that. Yeah. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. you got to have those checks and balances in life. I wanted to get into yeah. your, I I wanted to get into your background. There are a couple of golf questions I had, but maybe we can get to that later. I I want to get into your background because as you touched on, it's so different from everybody else that's in sports media and certainly with golf. How did you get into stand-up comedy? Because you were doing it for about twenty years before you got on the tour, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it, and it was my friends back in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that made me do it. I didn't want to do it. Um, it was always my dream since I was a little kid to to like be in entertainment and be. I, I don't know if I wanted to be a stand-up comedian or not, but I mean, there must have been a part of me that kind of understood it. Um, I remember when I was really little. Um, I did something in an opera house with my mom and my grandparents took me to see the nutcracker. And when the initial first ballet dancer came out on stage, he was wearing tights and, and I was standing on my grandfather's lap and the Fulton opera house is, it was packed. And I, and I'll never forget. I, I just said out loud, Hey Papa, I can see his hiney, (laughs) but he's wearing pantyhose. And I remember the whole opera house exploded in laughter, right? And even the ballet dancer cracked a smile. And I'll never forget feeling like I knew I did that, that I made all those people laugh. So it was like I really, at that point, then, then as I got older, my mom used to let me stay up when Saturday Night Live first came out. She would let me stay up on Saturday night and watch it with her. Cause I was like her TV, you know, hangout partner, you know, (laughs) which was cool. And that's when I was like, man, that's what I want to do. Like, cause I would see her laughing. And I was like, I want to make my mom laugh like that. And then my friends found out about when I was 20, my friends found out about an open mic night in Lancaster where you could just get up and do five minutes at this place called the Uptown Comedy Club. And they bugged me for three months. Like you got to go do it. But I kept telling them, no, because I kept thinking to myself, like, if I go on stage and I'm not funny, I lose my dream.
2: Hmm. So
1: like it, sometimes for me, it, I was, just kept thinking, at least at least I have a dream that I can hold on to. And if I go up on stage and I'm not funny now what? Like what up? But they would not let it go. So I was finally like, "You know what? Fine, I'll do it. So I told four of my friends, I was like, "Listen, I'm going to go up here on Wednesday night, I'm going to do this." Don't tell anybody, okay? Just y'all, and that's it. Like you four guys can go and don't say nothing. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. And the club only held like ninety something people. And I get there Wednesday night, and it's like a hundred and twenty-one people. Like there's, they were just standing all over the place, and it must have been thirty of my friends. And I never get the MC came over, and he goes, all right, the guy on stage, and then him over there, and then you, all right? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And when he walked away, I ran to the bathroom and threw up. Mm. And that's the only time I've thrown up before I went on stage. And then I went on stage and I remember I couldn't feel my feet and I couldn't feel my hands. And I don't remember doing it, but I grabbed the microphone out of the mic stand and I had a little sheet of paper, like just a tear off notepad um, looking thing. And I had written down five words for, or subjects that I wanted to hit on. And I told my first joke, And I remember when I hit the punchline, like when you're terrified, time really does slow down. So I hit the punchline, and I remember nothing happened. (laughs) And in my head, like that little voice in my head was like, see, I told you, stupid. You should have never come up here. Now your dream's gone, and you're going to f it up for the rest of your life. And I remember as I was thinking that, then I was like, man, that sounded like thunder outside. And and as I thought that, it was like, blah, this, uh, the laughter hit. Like, all that happens in that less than one second. Wow. Your mind is really going that fast because <laughs> you're so on edge. Like, it's that fight or flight instinct. And when the last hit, I remember, like, that wave of, I don't even know what you would call it, that came over me. But it was, there's there's, I mean, I haven't done... A lot of drugs or anything like that, but I there's <laughs> nothing that compares to that. There's no drug or alcohol that gives me that feeling. So you... other than when you hit a punchline and people laugh, and I walked off stage, and there were other professional comedians there, and two of them came up to me and said, "How come we haven't seen you work in the circuit? Like where have you been? Who have you been working for?" And I told them uh, that was my first time on stage, and those guys both looked at each other and then looked at me. It was Bud Tanger and Lee Schaefer. And they were like, "You found what you need to be doing for the rest of your life." And then that was—I was hooked from that night on.
0: That's amazing because you just hear so many horror stories of stand-up comedians and guys that take years and so much time to hone their act and find their presence and, and figure it out on stage. And you had it from the very first set.
1: It was crazy too. I remember I went to one time when I went to New York to do like some sets up there. Uh, I got tickets to Donahue. when that talk show Donahue Mm -hmm. was on. And Joan Rivers was on the show. And I remember I asked her a question during the show, and I said, how do you know that you're going to make it? And she goes, if you kill in eight out of ten comedy clubs, in eight out of ten rooms, then you're going to make it. And I started making notes down of that, and I was hitting about nine. I was was rocking at about nine out of ten rooms. So she was right.
0: What was your set like?
1: Uh, I would call it high energy observational. Like whatever happened in my life is what I would talk about. Anything I would see, stuff that would happen with my friends. Like that's just, I took basically where my life was and talked about it on stage. And I was, you know, I I wasn't good and I'm still not really good at telling joke jokes. Like, Mm -hmm. so this guy walks into a bar. Like I'm not good at telling Mm -hmm. jokes like that. But like for some reason, even and I just did the same thing that I was doing when I was in junior high, like I'm not afraid to tell stories about stuff that happens to me. I'm not afraid to make fun of myself or anybody around me. And so I basically just took that to the stage with me.
0: Now, you had some overlap with golf and stand up comedy. Are you still getting on the stage now?
1: Uh, I will sneak on stage every now and then, but it's very undercover. Like to just do stand up, to get up and do five minutes here and there. But I won't ever, I don't ever tell anyone I'm doing it because nowadays it's, it's really stinks, but it's very dangerous because what I also learned in being in the media now is and having the job that I have and realizing how lucky I am at being in the position that I'm in, there's a lot of people that are very bitter and mad at the fact that I'm as lucky as I am. Mm. So they don't like the fact that I'm successful. These are people that I don't even know, like that I get message messages from Instagram and like social media. People come after me all the time. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know why ESPN hired you. You know, I'm going to get you this and that and, you know, the stuff that you're saying you should be fired for, like just people that you realize that are really bitter about where they are in life. And I'm the object of then, like, that's the dude I'm going to take him down. Like, so for me, if I go on stage or if I, let's say I would say, you know, hey, Michael Collins performing at the improv, wherever, blah, blah, blah you know, for two nights. So now someone's going to go in there and sneak a cell phone and they're going to record stuff that I say. And then they're going to go to their computer and cut and paste and make it look like I said something I didn't say. And what I've learned now, which is, you know, messed up a little bit, but it's the world that we live in, is that sometimes the truth doesn't matter. Yeah, It's only what gets out there first. And then by the time you figure out what the truth actually is, you can't take back what you did to the person that, you know, was disparaged against. You understand what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: You know, like, so if you go attack somebody for something that you think that they said, without actually knowing the whole story, then even when it turns out that you were wrong, like, there's no consequences for you, but the person that was attacked, there also isn't any repercussions for them. Like, they don't get to have their, they don't get to go back to their gig. So...
0: But people still think of you when people will still think of that story or that incident when they think of you, even if the whole thing was misconstrued.
1: Yeah. I mean, think about how many times in situations where, you know, somebody gets accused of something and even after, you know, it comes out, you know, that maybe the accuser was lying or there was bad, whatever, like the person that was accused of whatever, they're still hung out to dry. Like that that part never goes away. So for, in that sense, like for me, it's not, it's not worth the risk, even though I, I, like, I really love it and I miss it because, because of the comedy for me is freedom. Comedy for me is like, I don't, if I have a bad day, I can go on stage and vent and I feel better afterwards. And the fact that it makes people laugh. And then if they're not having a good day, Helps them get over their bad day too. Like, that's just a bonus.
0: Well, and you, and you kind of said it yourself. It's also like a drug for you. I mean, there's also that high that yeah. you just don't get doing anything else.
1: Yeah, there, because there, there is nothing like that. There's nothing. If you're on stage and there is 500 people in a room and they're silent, hanging on your next word or your next sentence. And even like the wait staff has stopped and the bartender <laughs> stopped pouring the drink and they're looking up too. Like, I, I mean, it's, I know it's, it sounds like a power trip, but it's really not about a power trip. What it is, is it's the anticipation of, I got you. Like, yeah. And I get to determine where we're going as a group. And the fact that you're with me, it's like, your family now like yeah. we're all on this journey together but i'm driving yeah you know what? and that's the it's the best
0: i gotta ask what's the worst moment you've had on stage
1: oh there's been a couple of those man like i did a gig in new jersey behind a bar <laughs> <laughs> and and the middle act was jukebox right so <laughs> You went in there, and then I was like, so where, where am I doing this? Well, we're going to play the jukebox for 10 minutes, and then you get up and do 10 minutes. Get up where? Like right here. You just walk behind the bar. Wait, I'm doing jokes behind the bar as the bartenders are walking? Yeah, 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 it's fine. And then what? Well, do like 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll turn the jukebox back on, and then we'll bring you back up after that. And I'm like, well, and there's just like three drunks at the bar, and that was it. And I did a cruise ship. The first show I ever did on a cruise ship. So have you ever been on a cruise before?
0: No, I. That that's not for me.
1: See, there's two dinners on a cruise. There's early seating dinner and late seating dinner. So early dinner is at like 5 o'clock. Now, if you're out on vacation, when have you ever eaten at 5 o'clock at night? <laughs> Never, right? The only people that eat at 5 o'clock at night are probably over seventy.
0: I get right? I get lunch at like three thirty.
1: See exactly. Yeah, lunch. Now imagine you're on a cruise ship, so this first seating dinner is at five o'clock and like the first show is at six o'clock. I'm like, man, that's wow, that's early show. Okay, cool. And I and this, you know, cruise ship, so it was six hundred people. And I'll look in like from the green room thing, I'm peeking out behind the curtain and there is no one sitting out there that I can see that's under 75 years old. Like I felt like they were just setting urns out on the table and about will jiggle when they think you're funny. Right. So now this cruise ship was small. So they gave some of the elderly people that were on there walkers that had wheels and brakes. Right. Mm-hmm. Because the ship would really toss and turn while it was in the ocean. Mm. So as the ship went up a wave, like you would hold the brakes, and then, as the ship went down, you would let go and shuffle a couple steps, <laughs> right, so yeah, exactly yeah, you now you're starting to visualize what I was seeing again, not okay? a cruise guy, so now I,
0: <laughs> you're not you're not selling cruises yeah. on me at all right now,
1: yeah, see, I know I'm not selling you on a cruise ship even a little bit, so I go on stage and I'm doing my act, and it's like nothing like i'm getting zero not even a giggle or something like they are they're into henny youngman and i'm like a pg virgin version of eddie murphy right <laughs> like that was how far apart we were audience and performer so i did a joke about women farting right and in the middle of the crowd at a table these three people get up two of them have those break walkers, right? So now they're now I'm only doing 15 minutes, but this is like seven minutes in and I'm going, oh, It's like, it's going to last forever. And as they're trying to time out, letting go of the breaks and take a couple of steps and they hold the breaks. I'm now I'm already not happy because I know like I'm bombing and I don't, uh, it's just not a good feeling. So I looked at them and I was like, y'all might as well sit back down because by the time you get to the door, I'm going to be done. (laughs) And the next act will be up here. And as soon as I said that, boy, all the pencils came out. And they were like, you know, how offensive and can't believe he's a representative and you would have him representing the cruise line. And And I I finished my set and I'll go off stage and the cruise director's there. And she was like, she goes, you know, listen, when we when we get to port, you know, we'll just pay you for the long weekend and you can fly back and we'll just call it all even. It was a learning experience. And I was like, yeah, no worries. It's all right. And I was just like in a bad place mentally and was like, man, this is just basically sitting in a corner with my head in my hands. Like, why did I even think this was going to be a good idea? So now it's late seating show, which dinner then is at like 7.30. So the show's at like 8.30, 9 and o'clock. And I just remember saying to myself, I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to try to do the same act word for word, like Mm
2: -hmm. just
1: to prove to myself and this cruise director that it's not me. Mm -hmm. Like that was not me. And I went up and 10, 12 to 15 minutes in standing ovation, like just tore the room in half. And I remember walking off stage and the cruise director shaking her head going, you're not going anywhere. Like, yeah. next, next time you go on stage for the early seating, you're going to do like three knock, knock jokes. You're going to apologize and you're walking off. And I was like, cool with me. Cause I, then I was feeling like, see, I knew it wasn't me.
0: Yeah. But yeah. yeah,
1: that was the worst. That was actually having, having people hate you. on stage. <clears throat> there are some times when it's okay that, that, you know, I've had drinks thrown on me. Mm you know, because of a bit that I did. And, and and sometimes, like, I'm cool with that. Like, I'm all right with the fact every now and then where it's like, I don't always want to be the good guy. Every now and then, it's okay to play the bad guy or yeah. at least be perceived in that way, you know, as long as you know deep down in your heart like you're really the good guy and that part is every now and then a character. So, yeah, yeah, that was the worst, though. That cruise ship, and being hated by that many people, oof. And it was like old people, too. So that's the thing. Like, the last thing I would ever want would be to be hated by senior citizens. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, my grandfather was the most my, – my grandparents, my grandfather and grandmother. they were like two of the most important people in my life. And yeah. I used to be able to make them laugh like crazy. So I was just thinking to myself, like, really? You guys aren't nothing? Nothing?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you got introduced to golf in 93. And so you had been in the standup game for a long time and it was a few years, like 98 or so before you got on the course, so to speak, as a kind of a full-time caddy.
1: To the pro game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 90, I, I got turned on to the game in like, yeah, towards the end of the summer. No. Yeah. End of the summer of 93. Hmm. Um, and then, like, we just play sporadically, and it was another, that, that, that same guy who was there when I started doing stand-up, Lee Schaefer, he was the one that was like, you got to play golf. And I was like, no. just, just. Junior high, I used to chase the golfers home. Yeah, but just something to do. The, no, he was like, you got to play golf because everyone in the industry plays. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? And he goes, listen, everyone in the end- entertainment industry plays golf. So the best way for you to make connections is if you call a comedy club and say, Can I speak to the manager or the owner of the club and tell them, hey, I'm coming to I want to come perform at your golf at your uh, comedy club, but I'm gonna bring my golf clubs too as they're a good course around, that's a way for then the owner to say to you, Hey, bring your clubs and stuff. I'll get you up and you can do five minutes and me and you will go play golf. So that's an end that other comedians didn't do, but it'll get you in the door. And for me doing standup was like, listen, all I, just let me go get on stage. If I get on your stage and I can't make your crowd laugh, then I won't ask you to hire me. Hmm. Like, I'm not going to get up there and bomb and be like, so, huh? How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Want to do a weekend and give me some money? Probably not. So then through golf was, since I started playing golf in 98, uh, a kid I had gone to high school with, was now the assistant pro in hilton head at jack Nichols's course and a, a comedian i had been performing with for a while had always booked that week the week of the tournament mm. and his wife was going to have a baby so he called me and said i can't do that week for the first time in like 10 years but i'm letting you know that so you can do it and i'm going to tell the owner to put you in there so i called my buddy and on monday and was like hey man i'm here you're doing shows the whole week? Let's, what are we going to do? And he was like, yeah, well, let's, we'll go to the tournament on tomorrow, on Tuesday. And I was like, what? No, man, they don't play until Saturday or Sunday, yo. <laughs> and, and he just laughed. And he was like, no, man, that's when they're on TV. But they, they play on Thursday. And I was like, well, why are we going on Tuesday? And he goes, we go during practice. And I was like, ha-ha, golf practice. That's the stupidest thing I've heard of. Like, who practices golf? That's dumb. And he was like, just shut up and we're going to go. And he ended up going. Um, There was all that whole week, the craziest stuff happened. But long story short, I met Omar Uresti on Tuesday and his brother, Hoss, who was caddying for him, Rusty. Um, And they came to the show Tuesday. And then by the end of the week, like probably 50 golfers and 100 caddies had been to the show. And they all were saying the same thing, like you start booking comedy wherever the tour is going to be. So I did. I started booking comedy wherever the PGA tour was going to be. I booked the comedy gig as close as possible to where they were. And then the daytime would hang out with the golfers. And at night they would they would come to the comedy shows and we would talk about stuff you know, during the practice rounds. And then like Tuesdays and Wednesdays, the caddies would would they would say, hey, Mike, you want to carry the bag? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm thinking I get to be under the ropes. Yeah. I'm not thinking the bag weighs 35 pounds and we're going to walk <laughs> six miles, which is why the caddies always had a sly grin on their face. But for me, it was like, well, it's a win for me, too, I guess. So I was a lot skinnier back then, too. <laughs> so the end of that year um, at the Disney tournament, Haas, uh, on the last toll that Omar was going to play, Haas, you know, told me, they gave me the sign, come here. And I walk over to the tee. It was the ninth tee on the Magnolia course. And he starts taking the bib off. And he was like, Bring him home, dude. And I go, What? And he goes, Here, man, put the bib on and bring Omar home. Last hole of the year. Let's go.
2: Hmm. And I
1: was like, Okay. So he hit a great drive, hit a second shot to eight feet, missed the putt, but made his par. And I was like, That was the coolest experience ever and then the next year 99 robert Gomez has called me and said he had been in a car accident the year before and then tried to come back it wasn't playing very good and called me up and said what are you doing next week and i said well i'm you know nothing i'm i got a gig on a saturday and, on a friday and saturday but i can cancel it it's only one show a day and it's, i'm not making big money and he was like perfect cancel next week come to louisiana and caddy for me i got to play a nike tour event my caddy quit. I'm playing like crap, and I just want—I need to have fun on the golf course again. I think that's what's missing. And I was like, "All right, cool." And we got to the tournament, and it had been like, like a tsunami—it was like a tsunami hit the golf course. So the course was underwater. We got zero practice round in. They canceled the pro am. They basically gave Robert and I a golf cart and said, "You can drive around and look at the course, but you can't hit any shots." Well, I'm like, well, that doesn't do me any good, Like, I because I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. And on the first tee, for real, like, they called the name Robert Gomez, and I put the golf bag there, and he goes and takes the head cover off the driver, and pulling the driver out, and I looked at him, and I was like, yo, don't hit it in the sand trap down there, because I don't know how to rake like a pro, okay? Cool. And I'll never forget the look on his face, and I was confused, because I was like, man, why does why did he make that face? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And, of course, he hit it right in the bunker. Just And he comes over slams the driver in the golf bag. And I was like, I just told you not to hit it in there, man. And he was like, you can't say something like that because that's exactly where I'm going to hit it when you say that. And I was like, now you tell me what to say? And, we, and I laughed. And then we get down there, and it's a par five, and I go, what are you going to do? And he goes, I'm going to take a three wood, and I'm going to hit it in the front green side bunker, and I'm going to get up and down for birdie. And I was like, I just told you that I don't know how to rake like a pro, and you're going to hit it in two bunkers on the first hole? Man, you hit it in that front bunker. I'm going to go call INS. I'm going to get you deported now. (laughs) And he started laughing. Snatched the three-wood, jumps down in the bunker, gives me a look, calls his shot, hits it right in the front bunker. And as it's going, he turns and just gives me another sly look. And it goes in the bunker and I lay the bag down and I was like, I'm going to INS right now. I start walking like I'm <laughs> going back to the first tee. And he's like, get Joe Black behind, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, we're cursing each other out, laughing the whole time. But of course, then I look over because I realize, wait a minute, there's two other guys playing with us. And I look over at them and their caddies and they, are, they have these mortified look on their face. Like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. So that was my introduction to caddying. But by the end of that week, Other guys gave me their number and said, hey, call me when you get a week off from caddying because I need to have fun like that on the course too. Yeah. And then that's how it started.
0: Now, Now, clearly guys wanted you around for your sense of humor, but there was some aspects of the job you had to learn that you didn't know right off the bat. Like, What was the learning curve like when it came to actually figuring out the ins and outs of the job itself?
1: So the hardest part for me was the angles. You know, like you always put the 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 hole on the green is the middle of a circle, right? So
2: mm-hmm.
1: wherever the yardage that you're walking off from, you know, it's there are different angles. So if you're in the right rough, but the 150 marker is in the middle of the fairway, but sure. like you don't walk parallel to the 150 marker because it's a circle that goes the whole way around. So you have to learn kind of those angles and then learning why you rake the bunker in the direction that you rake it. So sometimes you rake it a little sideways and other times you rake it straight. You know, when you can. So I went to when I when I really started getting into it, by the third or fourth time I was like, This is I really like this because two things. One, it's the for me it was the opposite of stand up comedy. In comedy, I'm standing on stage and it's just me and a microphone and that's it i'm responsible for everything but as a caddy i'm still responsible but i'm responsible for this other person and they're the person that has to stand in front of the camera they're the person that has to get up on stage and perform right then right there but i get to be the guy to go i'm like the i'm like the vice president like the president goes out and makes the speech but it's the vice president is like yo tell him this and then you got to say, it, check it out. and That'll be good. And they go, Oh yeah, yeah, that works. Right. So that part of it really intrigued me. The psychological part of golf that I never knew about that I got to be a part of fascinated me. So that part of it, there was a, there was not necessarily a learning curve with the psychology part about it, because the one thing that I never was, was afraid. And, I was good at reading greens, um, and I was never afraid to speak up. So, if a if a if I didn't think what a guy was doing was right, I would not be afraid to tell him. In the beginning, because I was like, "Well, I got a job, right? Mm-hmm. So why would I be scared of getting fired?" You know. And if you fire me, whatever, I'm gonna go talk about it all stage. Like I don't care.
0: How long do you think? So it, I
1: never, I never. Ha- how, how long do ahead. you
0: think it took for you to? become good at caddying, like to be a good caddy and to know the yardages and uh, to, to give the proper insight and advice and have a feel for the moment and the ins and outs of the job. Like uh, how long did it take before you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, this isn't just something I do on the side. Like I'm really good at this.
1: By the, by the end of 99, I've felt really, I felt comfortable. I never forget the first time that I pulled a guy off a club it was Chris couch. Um, and we were in like Lakeland, Florida or something. And he was going to hit a nine iron and I, and I'm looking above the tree line and the tops of the trees are blowing pretty good. The flag is not moving, but the trees were moving pretty good and we couldn't feel it. And I remember when he grabbed the nine iron and started to step in, I was like everything inside it, my stomach went into a knot and it was like, that like the hair kind of was standing up, but not in a good way. Like it was when you know something's wrong and your everything in you is saying, you got to stop this. Don't let this happen. Right. So he starts to step in and I was like, wait, wait, Pars, hold on, hold on. And he goes, he just looked at me like, what, what are you doing? Like, I'm about to hit this shot. And I, and I told him, man, that's too much club. And he goes, what? And I goes too much club. And this we had to carry it over water. And he goes, what do you mean this is too much club? And I go, I know the, it's a front pin placement. I know it's close to the water, but if you look at those trees, man, look at the wind. When that ball gets above the trees, man, that wind's going to force it really good. So we got to play for that. The pitching wedge is the right one, man. It's perfect. And, he, and <laughs> not to make me feel even more confident, he just goes, all right. <laughs> and shrugged his shoulder. Which then for me, I was like, right. right? Because then that little guy in your head is going who do you think you are like you ain't a pro caddy you just made this dude hit it in the water and this is all your fault and he's trying to do this for a job like and all that starts going through your head and he hits it and as it's in the air like i i don't make a sound and in (laughs) like inside you're making deals that's when you're going check it out like I promise I'm going to go to church, not just on Easter and on Christmas, right? Like, I'll go. I, how about if I go, like, the week after Christmas, too? Like, come on, please, Lord. If you would just this one time, you know, help a brother out just a little bit. I promise, you know, I'll, I'll do some charity work if you make this work out. Like, And it cleared the water, one hop, and stopped it about three inches away. Mm. And Couchy then handed me the club, and he was like, good call there, (laughs) pro. And then I was like, let me just say, it would have been tough for my torso to fit through a door because my cojones had grown that big after that. And But, you know, it was just once I had that confidence, too, like, you know what, I can do this. I can, all right. And that's why when Couchy and I won the Nationwide Tour Championship, I, like... For him he had won before but that was the first win for me and like i cried after that first win because it validated what i felt like i felt like yeah i am i am a good caddy i am i can do this job as good as as the best guys that are out here you know but until you win you don't necessarily feel that so the first time I caddied a PGA Tour event was for Dudley Hart's brother, Steve, in San Antonio. And I was performing that week. And we made the cut and finished, like, I don't know, 20, 26th or something like that. And he hadn't had a top finish in a while. But I wasn't a full-time caddy. So he was like, all right, man, so next week you're going to meet me in Virginia. And I was like, whoa, 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 no, man. What are you talking about next week in Virginia? He was like, we got to keep this going. And I was like, no, you got to keep it going. I got a gig next week. Like, I'm still doing stand-up. But then the difference between those two weeks of, of like, when I pulled Couchy off of a club and, like, for Steve, I was reading greens already because he asked me during the practice round, hey, take a look at this and tell me what it does. And I would tell him, put it right here over this spot. And if it rolls over this spot, it's going dead center. And he did it. And then he was like, man, you can read greens. And I was like, I guess.
0: (laughs) How long did it take before – you started doing less stand-up comedy and more caddying, and and suddenly that was kind of becoming your career.
1: It was like 50-50 in 2000, and then when Couchy and I won the Nationwide Tour Championship and he he was going to the PGA Tour, we finished second in Miami and then won the next week at the Tour Championship, and he was fourth. He went from ninth on the money list to fourth on the money list, and he was like, let's we're going to do this let's go on the pga tour and i canceled like six months worth of gigs because i was like here we go here we go it's going to be on now and three tournaments in he fired me
2: (laughs) Hmm.
1: yeah and that was part of the gig i didn't understand is that there's no guarantees like
0: So what yeah, was so what, it was it What was it, that it moment was like going devastating, from was
1: terri it was terrifying. It was terrifying because that's when I realized that as a comedian, like I have total control of my career, my performance, my material. I'm I'm I have control of where my life goes or or what I do. As a caddy, you you have none. There's no There's no such thing as a written contract. It's not like like Bones and Phil is a perfect example. So they were together for twenty five years. Like Bones is not getting a severance package (laughs) when him and Phil split. Like he's not getting he's not getting four or five weeks worth of pay, right? Like afterward, when they decided to split, that's it. Like he's not getting another check. So if a guy and this happens a bunch too, if you're with a guy one week, and after that week is over, no matter how good you play, if he goes, we're done, that's it. You, There's nothing. You don't have any income coming in. And that's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying for anyone.
2: Yeah.
1: Less someone who just got married. Like, I was a newlywed at the time. So it was like, now what do I do? I'm supposed to provide for a family. You know, my wife. You know, thank goodness we didn't have any kids at the time. But... It was like, what do I do?
0: Were you out of so Were you ever out of work for very long?
1: Nah, uh-uh. that's what I got extremely lucky. Is that you know? The, the The week after I got let go, the Florida swing started, and they were still playing um, the tournament in Miami at the and I was in the parking lot, so. Uh, Omar and I were, were still like, he's one of my best friends out on, out on tour. And um, he had knew that, that couch and I split because I was like, what do I do, man? I canceled six months worth of gigs. And he was like, man, just get to Miami, you know, and I stayed at my in-laws house and was at the course Monday morning, first thing, like seven o'clock in the morning, you know, but it was still dark. It was like, all right, I got to find a job, man. I got to do this. And, Omar came down from the locker room was like, Hey, I just talked to Daniel Chopra, um, him and his caddy split before he came here and he saw what you did with Couchy and thinks that the two of you, that you guys would be good together. And I was like, heck yeah. Perfect. So I had a gig that next week. Hmm.
0: Now you ended up doing this for about a decade.
1: Yeah. On and off. I mean, it was, it was, I was caddying and then I got kind of recruited by Sirius XM radio at the time. It was just XM and they had the PGA tour network and someone approached me from there <laughs> and the, the guy never really introduced himself. He just came over and he goes, man, so you're the comedian. Yeah. And he was like, I saw your stuff on USA network. I had been doing stuff on USA network. They had a show called PGA tour Sunday, um, that I got on and was doing had done that for five seasons and had done a couple of things on Golf Channel, and then this guy came up to me and he was like, "Man, we really love what you bring to the game. It's a lot different. How would you feel about doing play by play?" And I was like, "Yeah, that'd be awesome. Who are you with? CBS, NBC, ABC? You know, who are you with?" And he was like, "Uh, nah, man, we're with radio." I go, "Radio, golf on the radio, like." it's hard enough to watch paint dry. You can tell people they're going to listen to paint dry for real. And he just laughed and he was like, no man, it's more popular than what you think. And we think your personality would be great. So I was like, does it pay? He goes, yeah. All right, I'm in. I'll try it. Why not? So I started doing play by play on Sirius XM on my weeks that I wasn't caddying kind of to supplement the income. And, you know, because they paid all expenses. So it was whatever I was making then was cool because, It was I was bringing it home, Um, so it made it hurt a little bit less if I was caddying and we missed the cut, Mm -hmm. because caddies have to pay all their own expenses: airfare, hotel, rental car. Like a lot of people think, caddies like the the player pays for everything. Nah, player doesn't pay for anything. You get a weekly salary, and with that salary, like you're paying for your hotel, your rental car, your food, your what all of that good stuff. So if your player's missing cuts, like you're not making money, you're losing money. Um, especially if you're not with one of the top nowadays, if you're not w- with one of the top fifty players in the world, like if you're with a guy who's like 120th on the FedEx Cup list, like you're about breaking even. Yeah. So, to do something that would supplement on the side was cool, and that's was Sirius XM, where they came along, and then the head of ESPN, there's um, the head of the digital side of ESPN was a closet golf freak. Well, not really in the closet because everybody knew that this dude was a golf maniac. And mm-hmm. he heard me on Sirius XM and heard me doing interviews with players and then went to the golf editor and said, you know, one of our guys is leaving maybe go talk to this dude just to see if he'd be interested. And, and that was it. And I, they reached out to me on Twitter so I always tell me when they say, how'd you get a job at ESPN? Twitter.
0: Get on Twitter. Because
1: the guy initially, yeah, he reached out on Twitter. and was like, hey, you got time to chat? And I, I just thought it was for a radio interview because I was doing a radio interview with St. Louis earlier that day. So I was like, yeah, I got ESPN St. Louis at like two and we can chat after that. And he was like, perfect. Okay. So, here's you know, DM him. Here's my number, blah, blah, blah. So I get off the phone with ESPN St. Louis and this guy calls me and we start talking for a little bit. And it's funny because, you know, most of the time, the first time you do a radio interview, you know, they call you a little bit early. You talk to them to kind of get to know each other, and then at some point they say, "Okay, we're rolling, we're recording, or like, all right, when we come back, we're gonna be live." Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. And this dude never said that. And then he was like, "So have you ever written anything?" And I was like, "What? Written? Who is this?" And he goes, "Oh, it's Kevin from ESPN." I go, "Yeah, I know, but." ESPN New Mexico, ESPN Iowa, I don't, like and he goes, "No, I'm in Bristol, Connecticut." And as soon as he said that, it was like red flag. Hold up. Bristol like headquarters Bristol and he goes, "Yeah." And I put the phone on mute and I turned to my wife and I was like, "Hey, I think this is like ESPN, ESPN." And she goes, "What do they want?" I don't know. And I took it off mute and I was like, "What's this about? Is this a radio?" And he goes, "Nah, we're losing a a person and you know, we're thinking you might be interested in coming up for an interview, and I put the phone on mute and turned to my wife and went, "Holy bleep! Like <laughs> this is for real. I think it's for a job." So that was it,
0: and that was enough to for you to decide I'm gonna put the bag down. Like I'm, I'm, I'm good with that stage of my career.
1: Well, the thing with SiriusXM was, as it was awesome working for him, but it was like. There were all these different things that was going on. It was at the time XM was bought by Sirius, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of turmoil going on. And so it was like I, I, I felt like, just like I felt like when I was caddying, like I didn't necessarily have true job security. So like when I would be doing Sirius XM, twice, first Kevin Strillman came and I had not caddied in about I don't know a year. And Strills came and said, you know, hey, man, how would you feel about carrying the bag again? And I said, you know, if the right guy came along, yeah, absolutely, I'd do it. And he goes, what if it was me? And I was like, I'll take this mic off right now. Take all this whole pack off and let's go because I know how good you are. And then later that year, he said, you know, all right, are you serious? Let's go. And after the Players' Championship was like, we're going to go Byron Nelson. And we ended up winning – the Kodak Challenge. That was the first year of the Kodak Challenge. And then the next year, he brought his old caddy back. And I was done again. But SiriusXM was always cool. They were always like, you know, you can always come back. if you caddy? Because they thought they liked the fact that as as I was caddying, that I would have inside information that no one else had. Because I would, you know, the week before, I'd be, I was on the bag. Mm-hmm. So I could tell people stuff that no one else could. and And then... Put the bag down and went back to SiriusXM for a bit. And then Scott Piercy was like, hey, man, what you doing next week? (laughs) Working for you? Yeah. Where are we going? (laughs) He was like, John Deere, let's go. And we top-tended that week, and that was it. It was on. And then end of that year, SiriusXM – well, it was the end of that year then that SiriusXM was like, we don't know what we're going to do. And Piercy was like, he's not sure what he was going to do. So – and that following year, I'd done just a couple of things for Sirius XM and then that's when ESPN kind of contacted me and said, it was, it was everything happened at the moment that, it, that I needed it to happen. Like, when things could have been really bad for me or my family and whatnot, like, everything kind of fell into place. It, it's weird, man. I, I totally and completely believe in karma.
0: And this is around
1: 2011? Yeah. Yeah, it was 2011, 2012 when all of that started going down. What do you miss? Yeah, 2011.
0: What do you miss most about catting?
1: The the chance to win. The competition. I miss, I miss me and one other dude trying to beat a golf course. I miss me and another dude trying to figure out or, or just a golfer. I would I would love the caddy on the LPGA tour too. Cause I I love trying to do it better than everyone else did it. I love I love that zone that you can get into as a caddy and a player where every number seems to be like the perfect number where when the player says, what do you see this doing? Like it's, it's almost like it, like there's a glowing, a glow, like there's a line, like literally someone took a pen and drew the line for me and go, what's right here. Just roll it right here. It's going to break a little this way or a little that way. It's a little uphill. It's a little downhill or this one, there's a trick here. And, like I love and I miss doing that coming down the stretch trying to win or like if a golf I love if a golfer doesn't have their best stuff I love being able to say something to that golfer to bring the best out in them you know or if a golfer is like really getting hot I love being able to say and do things to make sure that they don't get too high or too low to keep them at that perfect spot where they stay in the zone. And, and to be a part of a team that gets to do that is, you know, I miss that a lot. I miss it a lot.
0: You think he'll do it again?
1: I, I think in a substitution role I would. Like if a guy – what my, my dream – now would be like if somebody if one of my friends needed a week off let's say they you know had something family related that they had to take care of or do but the golfer loved the golf course and wanted to play like one week when i caddied for rich beam his his um daughter one of his kids was being christened but beamer loved this other golf course and didn't want to take the week off but he also didn't want to bring in a caddy who was going to the whole week be lobbying to steal his guy's job, mm-hmm. right? So I got to come in for the week because he knew like I didn't want his I didn't want his bag full time. He had a full time guy, but he I was a good enough caddy and would keep him in a good place, like he was his fifth in a row or sixth in a row. So I like that like that substitution role where you can just call me in from the bullpen. I love being I could be like the perfect. Closer or middle reliever, right? Like you just walk out to the mound, touch your left arm. I'll come out of the bullpen, throw three scoreless innings, and then you're good to go. Bring your closer back in, right? Like that's – I would love to do that because I still – I love the gig that I have for ESPN, and I love the fact that now, you know, after after I've been there for a little while and kind of started to really establish myself – that I'm getting to now branch out and do more fun stuff with more sports figures in different sports and areas. And so it's like I'm slowly but surely really turning what's always been my dream into a reality. And ESPN really let me do that. So I don't know that I would want to go back to Caddy in full time. Mm -hmm. Would I? Yeah, if I got fired tomorrow by ESPN or – like if something catastrophic happened where I, I lost my job or something like that, could I go back to caddying and be good at it again? Oh yeah, yeah, I could in a heartbeat. Okay, well, in a heartbeat. if it wouldn't, if it if, wouldn't if, be my choice, if, but.
0: if if that happened and you had to go one of two directions and one was caddying, one was back on stage, you go caddying.
1: Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Um I, it would be easier for me to caddy now than it would to restart doing comedy again, because I would have to, I would have to start over doing standup, you know, because I've been away, because I've been away from doing it full time for so long.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it would be like starting over. Like I would, you know, I, I have, I have friends that are still in the industry that I could probably call and say, Hey, you know, can you get me at least some stage time? Cause that's what it would be. It would be comedy is all about stage time. You know, and the more that you're on stage, stage size and repetition, the more that you're on stage and and the more times you get up there and do stuff, the more comfortable you are. Now, I would have a plethora of material. I would feel like I would have a full encyclopedia of information and material to draw on, you know. And if I was never going back to golf again, what?
0: (laughs) If you could burn that bridge, the the set would get a whole lot stronger. Yeah, like if
1: I didn't. Yeah, if I just was like, I don't care about any of these people anymore. Like, I'm I'm going full-on nuclear on everybody. Like, you know, I would never – I don't know that I could ever do that. You know what I mean? I don't know if that part's in me to go nuclear, you know what me I mean? <laughs> like, full-out, like, just dropping the hammer on everyone. And because it's, you know, there's still – at the end of the day, you know, for whatever you do and whatever you say – like at some point you're going to have to pay for that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Like as great as it might be, like this dude just went full out and laid out everybody. Like at some point you're going to be like, Oh man, that's a shame. Whatever happened to so-and-so. He's like, Oh yeah, he's working at Starbucks now. You just, (laughs) you
0: just said you were a firm believer in karma. So that might not be the best
2: move.
1: Right. Yeah. So that's, and I, I mean, that's not in my nature to do anyway. It's like, I I never want to build I would never want to build myself off of tearing someone else down mm-hmm. because I think that's in any in any area of life I don't think that's that's a I don't think that's a a, a win-win situation like anytime there's win lose then at some point you're going to be the loser and when you lose then who's going to help you up Whereas if you're, if for me staying positive and like being optimistic all the time, I think that's part of why when I would be, when I would start to fall in an area, someone would always reach out and go, nah, 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 this dude is a good person. Like we don't want him to fall. It, it felt, it kind of felt like that. It kind of felt like, and if, if I saw someone else falling, I would reach my hand out to go man grab me, come on. Yeah. I can't let you fall. You're a good person. Like I don't wanna do that. You know? So I I I would have a tough time just like burning bridges down like that, you know? Yeah. And I you know, I could what if I wanted to go back and do play by play for Sirius X M or you know, what if what if, you know, the golf channel or NBC or like what if situations change, like when the T V contract comes up, what if that situation changes and new opportunities come around. I don't want anybody to be like, yeah, but that, that Mike guy's an ass. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want anybody to ever say that about me. I want people to say, we like working with him. We love working with him. And, you know, I want people to, to. Not want me to be gone. You know, like there are some times that you're like, oh, you know, so-and-so left and they went to do this. And some people around to be like, good. Mm -hmm. it's all right that we don't have them around anymore like I don't want people to say that about me I would rather people be like man it's a shame we lost that dude yeah like and I feel like that happened with Sirius XM when I when I stopped doing play-by-play on Sirius XM like people still come up to me on the golf course and like we miss you doing play-by-play and that was six years ago and it's crazy to me like it's so humbling and so flattering but it also is motivating to me to say see this is this is why you try to be nice, man. You try and do things the right way because it does pay off in the long run.
2: Yeah,
0: no question. Real quick before I let you go, because we've gone way over the amount of time I told you we were gonna go. <laughs> and haven't my really... bad. I'm sorry. No, I... no. I, I very much appreciate it. Um real quick golf question. Open championship coming up, Royal Burkdale. Give me a couple names. Yep. Oh, no,
1: man, no, no. See, this is, you picked the wrong tournament to ask me that because you know who wins at the Open Championship always? Mother Nature. She's the only winner. Because that's the one tournament, the one major who doesn't, that's, she determines who is successful, you know? Because if, if you go there and you're like, this dude is playing amazing golf, he's won five in the last nine tournaments and hasn't finished outside the top three or whatever. And then when that dude's tee time gets called, he's playing in like biblical weather. Like there's <laughs> nothing that you can do about it. So that's the only tournament where it's like that, where it's like, whoever the favorites are doesn't even matter because if they play through horrible weather and the guy who's ranked 198th in the world gets the perfect draw and he happens to be playing pretty good, that dude's going mm-hmm. so so go to win. So the Open Championship, I have to do that top 25 list, and the Open Championship is the bane. That's the one major that I hate doing. I remember one year I just threw out – I took the top 50 names and I put them on – uh, flash cards and I flipped them upside down and I threw them all over the floor and I let my two kids pick. And I just, okay, because that's about what you're doing. Yeah. When it comes to the open championship. Yeah. And they, that was like three years ago. My kids still bug me. They want to do that again. They thought it was hilarious.
0: Give it another shot. So we got Mother Nature to win the open championship this year. Mother
1: Nature is the one that's going to win. All right. But it's like all the normal suspects, all the usual suspects you would expect. Like I would, John Rahm is in a really good place right now and he's playing good. You know, he's, he's a, he looks like a lock for rookie of the year. And although some people aren't crazy about like his emotions and stuff on the golf course, I'm cool with them. Well, I shouldn't say I'm cool with them. I'm understanding towards them. Like every guy is not going to be the vanilla robot guy out every guy's not going to act like Adam Scott and I don't want that either like I wouldn't I wouldn't I like the fact that John Rom gets mad and those clubs and has temper tantrums and stuff like that because he doesn't act like everybody else like because mm-hmm. I know guys who are like that at a regular golf course but I like this game coming in right now Rory I would love to see him be successful too but I'm Rory still can't get past that one bad round Mm -hmm. Rory still hasn't been able to turn the 74 75 into the 70 or 69 and and I don't know that he's going to be able to do that at the open championship I just I just don't know Dustin Johnson is another one like golf has so many ebbs and flows it's Dustin Johnson is in a great place and like we would all be freaking out disappointed if he had a backdoor top five we all Dustin Johnson was terrible, like he wait, he finished fifth, yeah, but he didn't have a chance to win. He finished fifth,, yeah. right? so Jordan Spieth, like all of these dudes look like they're in okay form coming in, but um I don't know that there's one I don't know that there's one guy right now that I would just be like, "This is the dude to beat when well, it all yeah shakes and, out like nobody's rocking against this guy yeah. yeah
0: and we've had what seven straight majors won by a first time major winner which further complicates things and further you know makes it difficult to <laughs> to try and put a finger right. on who's going to do what any given week and then when you throw in just the unpredictable nature of uh the open tournament and that style of golf i mean there's is right. I'm, ask, I'm asking i'm asking you i'm asking you an impossible and- question here
1: yeah, I know. Well, it's okay. You ain't the first one. And and I, I'm much more confident picking all the other majors, PGA Championship, U.S. Open, Masters. U.S. Open was tough this year because Aaron Hills, like nobody knew really what to mm-hmm. expect. And that was that was kind of awesome what happened. Like all the dudes that were – all the dudes that threw shade on the people that were explaining what the golf course was, all those people that threw shade, they was gone for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Like that was – that just cracked me up. Like, all them dudes was talking all that smack about, well, if you can't hit a 60-yard wide thing, you shouldn't even be here. <laughs> all right, well, enjoy yourself. Your trunk is open right now, folks. Shouldn't have said nothing. <laughs> Karma, bitch in the ass, told you. Um, but for the open, it's like, go go look at the European tour and see how many guys have won in the past two months that you're like, who? Yeah. Like, I, I'm going to have to do so much homework on so many of these guys like it gives me a headache just thinking about
0: well i'll let you get to it this was really really fun i i I appreciate you doing this this is great (laughs) thanks mike enjoy (laughs) the
1: anytime i can't thank you enough for having me on man this was a lot of fun dude i'm i'm sorry i get i get talkative when i when it comes to like telling people my story and
0: how i got to where i am so well like... a, don't apologize it's a great story and and uh, I'd, I'd much thanks, rather man. listen to you than than listen to myself so this is a great time <laughs> hey enjoy yourself and safe travels over there as well
1: anytime man thanks for having
2: me thanks